Sorry. Hi. Look at this. Chris is here two weeks, two weeks in, in a row. row. Two weeks. We're, and we're recording a podcast two weeks in a row. It's That's like true. we're it's like we're back on back at it. I don't know. <laughs> And technically, we have a guest two weeks in a row because I was basically a guest last week, right? A guest. We have a real guest. I thought you were a host. Okay, I guess I'm a host now. Well, (laughs) we're super excited to be recording it. We're also super excited about um, our upcoming guests that we have on. She's amazing. Can't wait for you to hear that. But we're going to do some quick movie reviews slash some news. Okay, so like, what's with the BGs? First of all, like, they're are they like having a second, like, wind of things? What, like, if, what I do you mean? Like, what's with the BGs? Like, they're they're, they're, like one of they're the greatest musical. I, uh, I know. Yes, I like the BGs, <laughs> but it's like, I I just feel like I'm hearing about them a lot more now for some reason. Yeah, I I, I kind of wonder, like, because we had the documentary back in December, so I which I remember, I guess I remember hearing some time ago that Steven Spielberg was going to produce a movie. I don't, I don't remember. I think it was before the documentary, but yeah, it seems like a lot of things happening for them in a short amount of time. It's interesting. Well, okay. I mentioned that because uh, I think he's a sir, Sir Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Is he a sir? A I'm pretty sure he's a knight. He could be, he could not be. I don't know. I could have made it just that up, but uh, he's going to direct a biopic about them. So not only do we have that documentary, which I watched part of, and I, I know it's really good. Justin, you really liked it. Um, yeah, I loved we're, it. We're going to get a BG. BG movie, the BG movie. BG, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm. I'm obviously really excited. I similar to similarly to Bohemian Rhapsody. All I need is for them to be playing the music, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna be into it. Love it. I wonder who who could be cast in that. Any, I don't know because a few thoughts? years ago, like Justin Timberlake would have been great. A great Robin, oh, but he's uh, such he, a bad actor. <laughs> but he's not a good actor, and now I think he's like aged. Depending on when they said it, I guess whether it's like gonna be all encompassing or just. A specific time uh, time frame, but uh, just because we know he can sing and he can do the like, I don't know. I don't know who else would be good. I remember rumors not long ago about Paul right? Dano, but I guess he was already in yeah. the Beach Boys one. Uh, there were rumors before about Bradley Cooper as Barry Gibb, but I don't know if those were real or if it was just, you know, I don't know. Interesting. I, I could totally see Bradley Cooper for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, he's way older than Justin Timberlake. Yeah, but that, again, I guess it just depends on when they want to set it. You know, if it's going to be all encompassing, then I guess it doesn't really matter how old they are. But if it's, you know, I wouldn't want to see Justin Timberlake playing like a twenty-seven-year-old. I guess. Right. He's just such a bad actor. I he's also not a very good actor. I, yeah. don't wanna, I really don't want to see Justin Timberlake in in anything <laughs> ever, uh, except one- unless it's SNL. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I watched the trailer for Palmer and I said, nope. Yeah. No, they- uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, let's jump right into so Justin, you uh, watched the Tom and Jerry movie. How'd that I go? I watched the Tom and uh, We, it was not very good. Uh, my, but however, my five-year-old seemed to really enjoy it. I even asked her the next day. I was like, Sadie, did you enjoy Tom and Terry? She's like, oh yeah, I liked it. I liked the mouse. And I and was it, like, okay, it was cool. part live action, part uh, cartoon. Yeah, basically like all animals are animated, which was a fine decision to make. To and, you know, But the, it was just strange because like they have all the other animals talk and Tom and Jerry don't. And so all I kept thinking, because I don't remember in the cartoon if any animals talked or if it was just all silent. 
this has been so long since I've watched it. So I just kept getting distracted by like, why are these birds talking and this other cat is talking, but Tom and Jerry aren't talking. Plus like, they're like the B plot. They're like barely, you know, like the main plot is like Chloe Grace Moretz working at this hotel. Uh, and so it almost feels like it was, it was Casey who made this point. She was like, yeah, it almost felt like they took a pre-existing script and was like, let's make this Tom and Jerry. Mm-hmm. Like almost like it was originally a different movie that they were going to do like a kid, a family film, but then they worked in Tom and Jerry. It was strange, but yeah, Sadie liked it. My favorite liked it. So that's, that's, that, that's on HBO max right now. Right. That is. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, I, uh, I watched uh, coming to America on Amazon prime this last weekend. And I know it's not getting like the best reviews on Twitter, but I really liked it. I thought it was, I, I, I'm going to preface this by saying I fell asleep the last 20 minutes, but my parents' couches are very comfortable and it was very dark and cold down there. So I didn't have a choice. It's not because of the movie. It's just because of the atmosphere that I was in. And it's meant for falling asleep during movies. Not my fault. Um, But uh, I thought uh, it made me laugh. I thought it's definitely had some super cheesy, corny parts that you're just like, oh, this is an eye roll and not funny at all. But um, there was enough funny moments in there to make me really appreciate this movie. It was awesome seeing Arsenio and Eddie back in it again, playing those barbershop characters who are just always funny to me. Chris, you have no idea what I'm talking about because you've not seen Coming to America, which is insane. (laughs) I want to talk about it. I'm embarrassed. You were supposed to watch it this last weekend and you must have (laughs) been caught up in a Kardashians episode instead. You know, that's not even on the air right now. Okay, well, that shows how much I know about what's <laughs> happening in the Kardashians' life. Start soon, but that is the one show I don't watch, okay? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's worth a watch uh, for sure. Just like, I mean, if you're into like the nostalgia of coming to America, the first one, um, and just, you know, want to kind of relive those characters and... Um, it was fun seeing them on screen again. But yeah, it's, is it a perfect comedy? No. Is it as perfect as the first one? No, you can't compare them. Um, Coming to America was just, you know, brilliant and obviously hilarious for, for several reasons. So um, yeah, I don't think it's fair to compare them. But for what it was, I, I enjoyed it. I think people should watch it. Uh, I watched Murder Among the Mormons on Netflix. It's a three-part documentary series about... Uh, a bombing in 1985 uh, in Salt Lake City. And uh, it uh, I, I don't want to give too much away because it takes some twists and turns, um, but they make it seem that maybe the top uh, officials for the Mormon church might be behind something and they may not be. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, series. A lot of characters in it to where I got a little confused and I constantly after each episode had to ask Gretchen about what, who is this and what happened? They didn't, it's so funny because I, I think the biggest frustration was I'm so used to people putting up titles on documentaries so often that I, I keep track of, okay, this person, this person, they didn't do that that much. So then I was very confused at who people were. Um, but if you like, uh, you know, crime documentaries, then I would give it a shot. They're, they're short. Uh, I want to say the first episode is like 47 minutes. The second one's fi- on, uh, a little over 50. Third one's a little over 50. So a two hour and 45 minute movie, like a Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, mm. so it was, uh, but yeah, I recommend and, it. And just as confusing as a Christopher Nolan <laughs> movie oh, might oh, be. I still haven't watched Tenet. 
but I have a feeling it could be as confusing as today. <laughs> Sarah, what did you think of the WandaVision finale? Um, I was a little disappointed. Yeah? Yeah. I, I had unfair disappointments, <laughs> and only because, like, I wanted and expected them to set more stuff up for, like, uh, X-Men or just, uh, you know, the multiverse, more more which I know that that's leading to Dr. Strange and the multiverse. So I'm sure we'll get to it. But yeah. like, it was a lot of that stuff where I was like, I was definitely one of those, you know, uh, people who watched it and thought like, well, this means this and this means this. And so you're gearing up for like big setups and big reveals. And that's not what it was. Plus like the whole show was a lot more character driven and about her grief. And then, so the whole finale was mostly the, a big typical Marvel boss battle. Which wasn't uh, as exciting as one would think that that would end up being. I yeah, I like the vision thing. It's like he was defeated by a, a speech. You know, that was kind of, <laughs> that was that was really fun. Vision defeated vision with logic. With logic, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I you know I thought the after like the after credit scene was really fun, and I hope that you know I, I have high yeah. hopes for the future of Scarlet Witch and the. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm totally in agreement with what you said. Like, I, I think for the first Marvel thing on Disney Plus, like, everyone kind of expected, like, something, like, yeah. to, tie, to tie it together with um, stuff that's coming up, and it didn't, and we all kind of expected that big cameo, and that, that never materialized, yeah. and... I just, it, they kind of failed to do what Mandalorian did right, which is, um, you know, blend the future with the past, you know, really, oh, really sure. in a really exciting way. Like I thought, I thought, you know, there was definitely mentions of, of past Marvel things in there, but they, they didn't really set up the, the uh, next steps of it, like in a fun way. Sure. And, and definitely like Mandalorian did it, you know, with, uh, everyone's seen it by well like putting luke skywalker you know in a sure. it's like we didn't get that that big aha reveal moment of like <gasps> this is amazing yeah and we all kind of expected it so there was yeah i mean they set everybody up for disappointment it's their fault but um, <laughs> i yeah i think a lot of it was uh was my own expectations of what they were doing or going to do yeah um, plus, they were at a dis. I don't, I don't want to say disadvantage, but it wasn't meant to be the first Marvel thing. It was supposed to be like the third or fourth, like you know, Black Widow, Eternals, and right. Falcon Winter Soldier were all supposed to come out first. Um, but COVID and stuff shifted everything around. So maybe we would, maybe there would have been different feelings had had it not been the first thing in like okay, a year and a half. Uh, but Falcon and Winter Soldiers next week. That that seems like it might be more action heavy. <sighs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wasn't by any means, I didn't hate WandaVision. I thought it was, I loved how creative it was. I'll say yeah. that. Like, oh, I still not, not just talking, like as a whole, yeah, as a whole, it was just really creative and, um, and just a unexpected. showcase for, yeah. yeah. Um, just deep, a showcase for, for uh, yeah. Elizabeth Olsen. Emotional. Yeah. It had all those elements in there. I, I, I liked it as a whole, but yeah, the finale was definitely a little bit of a disappointment. Um, well, you know what else I watched? What? A little movie called The Stylist. Yeah, you guys both watched it. Yeah, it's really great. It is. Um, it is like awesome. And I mean, that's a big claim coming from you know the two big horror. You know, <laughs> well, Chris especially big horror fan on our podcast, um, and you loved it, Chris, right? I loved it. Um, I thought it was just so original. 
and beautiful in the craziest of ways, uh, so unique, uh, filmed right here in Kansas City, uh, which is really cool uh, to see such a such a cool indie horror film uh, get so much praise right now. Uh, that was just a uh, you know made in Kansas City. It's really cool. For sure, and we have a special guest. Yeah, uh, we have the director, producer, and co-writer of The Stylist uh, on our podcast right now. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. We're joined by a very, very special guest uh, today on our Screen on the Spot episode. Please welcome Jill Gavar-Gazion. Yay! <laughs> Yay. Hey, Hello, welcome. everyone. <laughs> uh, Jill is the uh, director, producer, and co-writer of the new uh, horror film called The Stylist. Um, it is a psychological horror film filmed right here in Kansas City about a lonely hairstylist named Claire, played by Najaro Townsend, who becomes obsessed with the lives of her clients, so much so that she starts to fall into a murderous rage, including scalping and killing her clients. Uh, the stylist is receiving critical acclaim from nearly everyone. He has nearly a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's currently on the streaming service Arrow. It's incredible. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. I can't say enough about this movie. I'm so excited to have you, Jill. So uh, congrats on all the love that you've been getting uh, on this film. That's awesome. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, we've, um, I know that you've been a hairstylist for more than a decade, it looks like. So when did you decide you wanted to become a filmmaker? It was, well, when I was, you know, like junior high age, I would make silly things with friends on my dad's giant camcorder on my shoulder. But we would like remake some of our favorite films, but we would just watch them and laugh like they were serious films. We would try to remake. I don't know what the hell we were thinking, but I didn't think of it as something seriously I could do until I went to a horror convention in my like late 20s and watched a lot of independent films there. Got to meet the filmmakers behind them. And that's like the moment when I realized that people could make movies, <laughs> that it wasn't just this like thing completely, you know, like out of reach for only very special people or connected people or something. And so it was really through that. I, I first started a screening series here in Kansas city called slaughter movie house that was running up until the COVID changed the world. Um, it was a monthly thing. And through that, I had to like seek out lots of filmmakers and get permission to show their work. So that's what inspired me to, I try to, I, was like working my way onto my friend's sets to just to get that experience and see what it was like and then a friend of mine eric havens had a script for a short film and i just asked if i could direct it and i didn't really know what the hell that meant at the time <laughs> i had no film school background or anything and just started just dove in and haven't stopped since then that was like 2013 when we did that wow awesome that's awesome um so talk about uh, a little bit about the uh, short film process and how that uh, turned into this feature film stylist. Yeah, when I, well, when I first had the idea, I wanted it to be a feature, but we'd only made, I'd only made the one short film and knew there's no way I was going to try to jump that far. And so it just made sense to start with a short film and then make the feature and then hopefully have the short film as a, thing to show people as like proof of concept and but it was a long process between the feature and the short we shot the short in 2000 
15, put it out in 16, and then worked on writing it for a couple years, sending it out to people while we were writing it, like producers, financers. Um, that's an up and down journey because you think like, oh, it's almost, it's going to get made. And then, and, and then it doesn't happen. And after a while, I just got fed up with that and inspired by a lot of filmmakers kind of like the Duplass brothers are famous for saying you can't wait for the, like the Calvary's not coming. Um, so if you want to, if you want to do something, you have to figure out how to do it yourself versus waiting for this magical opportunity to, you know, show up on your doorstep. So we just ended up doing a Kickstarter for it, but that was like a five year process to, to decide to do that. Um, so with Claire's character and the stylist, you being a hairstylist, um, how much of that was a reflection of yourself? Of course, minus the killer part. Um, but what I found interesting was, uh, my wife, she's a hairstylist and she talks about how wedding hair is the absolute worst. And I thought it was, uh, funny how, uh, Claire's friend or client that she approaches, you know, she's asked to do her wedding hair. Um, so that's when things start to go out of control. Um, talk about your relationship with Claire's character and how that whole character came to form. Yeah, it is very personal aside from the killing part. And um, this is so many people think I have this dark revenge thing that this is like about some clients that pissed me off or something. And it's so not. But um, so much of me is in her in little ways and bigger ways. But the wedding thing is is me too. I do not do like do wedding hair. I've done it for a few of my really good friends. But it is just such a stressful situation. It's kind of, I don't like doing hair that much on films either. I never do it on my own films, but the pressure of it be just like being on the, no one else understands how long that stuff takes. That's not in the industry. So they think like at a wedding, you can do seven people's hair in two hours and their makeup, right? No, that's like a five hour ordeal. Or you need like three hairstylists and three makeup artists, but it's just, on a wedding isn't like the, how the bride looks probably the most important thing. So it's like, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, so it was interesting that it's not really the idea that the wedding makes Claire fall apart, but that the wedding idea came to me and I realized that would kind of check all these dream boxes I had for the ending of the movie that we could make it really theatrical and really over the top and, really disturbing and tragic. <laughs> I'm a morbid person. <laughs> I, I think that that's what was really uh, fun for me about the movie too, was it was uh, like both beautiful and disturbing at the same time. Um, and, and I feel like you really dived into this uh, psyche of Claire's character. And like you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of pressure. Um, at least I hear it uh, every day about doing someone's hair. And so I felt like this was such a realistic uh, portrayal of someone who is lonely and really going through that and all that pressure building up inside of her. So that was, uh, that was really fun to see. Thank you. We have so much to thank to Najara Townsend for her performance. I was really worried about the character in even just writing it in her coming off campy because I acknowledged that her actions were over the top and not super believable, even in the most psychotic killer in the world. 
and but I wanted her to be like emotionally grounded. And so I was like, how do we do this? And I think it's thanks to her performance. She's really great. She really kind of nails down the sort of uh, social anxiety uh, aspect of the character on top of the going crazy parts. Um, and I wanted to ask about the cast because I, I don't think I've seen her before, at least that I'm aware of, and she's really great at it. But you also got um, Bria Grant to co-star in the film, who's like, I don't know if icon is too strong a word, but she's sort of like an indie horror um, icon in the last few years. How did she get involved? Bria, I had I got to meet through another project, uh, a feature I was brought on to direct and she was starring in, which we have yet to get off the ground. Um, and really ever since I met her through that, I just kind of always was picturing her as Olivia and got to work with her pretty close because we really like developed that script further and shot a, a trailer, a pitch piece for the film. And so when it came down to finally deciding we were going to do this Kickstarter and like piece the financing together independently, I reached out to her and it was really when she was, she has so many movies out right now. She has a film she wrote and directed called 12 hour shift on Hulu of when she wrote and stars in called lucky on shutter and this, and she's like writing and directing on multiple series. So it was more about like, could she, did she have time in her schedule to do this? Cause we're not the b biggest budget. So we can't compete with things that are really big. And I was like, don't say no to anything for this. Um, but I just knew she just, it, she in real life to me encompasses so much that of what that character is. And um, I just knew that she'd be the perfect kind of opposite against the, the, the personality of Claire and Najara. She's someone, I hope that she, like, I feel she's so talented. I'm like someone huge needs to discover her and put her in a huge movie because she's done a lot of independent films. She's been acting since she was a like five-year-old professionally um, she was in Me and You and Everyone We Know, which was a huge Sundance film when she was only like 15. And she's in Contracted, which is a bit uh, indie horror. It's kind of like one of her biggest credits, but that's how I discovered her. And she's just so talented, plays the role so subtly. I still see it. I'm like, how does she say so much? And she's not even, yeah. it's like just in her eyes or like yeah. behind her eyes. <laughs> Well, I thought, I thought it was really neat how you let scenes breathe too with her to, to really let her talent shine, uh, especially in the some of the brutal killing scenes uh, when she would just like keep going and going or uh, even towards the end, uh, I believe she's eating a pizza or whatever and just laughing, which <laughs> is so just like disturbing, but brilliant at the same time. Um, and, and that's what I, I really describe the shows or this movie as brilliant. Uh, and disturbing at the same time. Um, but but that was really neat that you let those scenes breathe. How important was that for you to to do that instead of the quick cuts like some of these big budget films do? It just, it was really a yeah. testament to the horror film scene. It, um, it's just something I learned from, you know, I'm trying to study all of the filmmakers I really admire and that are, you know, some of the greatest to understand why they do the things they do and um years ago i was watching this whole video this whole channel on youtube and vimeo called every frame of painting and that guy does these incredible video essays about specific filmmakers and i remember one about martin scorsese and it was specifically about his use of silence and how 
it was comparing his work to just modern filmmaking, how people are afraid to let any moment sit. It's like something happens and we got to cut right out of it. We can't even let like a hug sit for longer than one second. In fact, it used like a Superman example. It showed all these hugs and how they just cut out like instantly, like of three scenes. Um, but I just like that stuck with me. I was like, that's, I want to be the opposite kind of filmmaker. And, and then in a story like this, is just like is you know really a character piece and so it was just important to me to stay with her when we could and also to stay on solid shots not cut a lot within scenes because we have way too much coverage of everything even when we try to slim it down as much before we shoot but like there were certain basement scenes of her in her you know in her lair where like the first edit had way more angles and I was like we got to pick just a couple and let them play because you're just you're kind of doing an actor a disservice by cutting so much because you don't get to see a full performance. You just get to see like little pieces of 10 different performances. So it just made sense with this film, especially. I also enjoyed uh, the way that you used color uh, in the film. And, and I saw recently that uh, the LA times even gave you a shout out uh, for your use of, of color, uh, how it's just so elegant and beautiful set against this really dark scene. Um, talk about the use of color and, and, and how that played a role. I've gotten, I've gotten really geeky about color palettes in whatever we're doing and mo other mo movies when I'm watching it. But I feel like this is, do I know, I like, did I learn everything from this every frame of painting channel? Um, <laughs> there was one, I'm a huge fan of David Fincher and um, two. we are too. He, he's, big on color a lot of his films have a very similar color palette but they I remember discovering this like thing about Zodiac and how he used color to, to represent like the time passing and got so inspired by the idea that yeah color could be more than just aesthetic that it could have meaning or it could bring out the theme or it could do so many things so we we carried some some of the we, like we started this idea in the short but we were able to go crazy with it here and um just gave claire this very specific palette that like extended into her wardrobe and her house and the salon that was you know this like 70s all these warm golds and orange and red and brown so that she would also when she was anywhere else like it first started i'll rewind it first started that we like created olivia to have the opposite color palette because they were created as kind of doppel doubles like she's the the opposite ver the anti-claire and so purple was really her main color and all these cool colors and a modern loose feeling in general compared to claire being tight and things being kind of vintage and we extended olivia's look into like kind of the whole real world so that when claire would be like in a coffee shop or walking down the street she'd really stand out because she has like a color palette that no one else is wearing and just a way to like make her look like she doesn't fit in, but not in a way that's like she's a f freak or an outcast. Like she's not wearing something hideous or whatever. Um, but that she just kind of looks like she doesn't belong or she's from another time was the idea. That's awesome. Um, so talk about, how important it was to film in Kansas City 
and keep this in Kansas City uh, and showcase the scenery of Kansas City? It was incredibly important to me, probably to an annoying extent after all the years with the people we were working on it with. Um, really any project that I get involved with, I'm trying to convince them to shoot it here. But producers are always thinking about incentives in certain states and you know tax rebates that you get for filming certain places but and we have actually a great incentive here in kansas city kansas city most specifically but what you get out of like a place where you grew up where you know everyone is where there's like not a, a price number on what that will you know like what you can get out of that and you know, i grew up i was born and raised here in kansas city so i wanted to show it off. I have a lot of pride for the city, but we, I don't know if there was ever really a time where we were considering making this anywhere else. Half of my, half of the team that worked on it is from Chicago. They also worked on the short film and there was maybe talk a long time ago about possibly doing it there. And I was like, no way. Like I know where everything is here. We have got the salon here. Um, but yeah, we were, really geeked out about it to find lots of locations to show off. And even with any, any exterior scenes that we had that we could just be in any boring looking place, we wanted to find a way to show off like the city itself, the like skyline, like we've got Bria running through Cobb point park. So you can see like the whole downtown KCMO behind her and like the Missouri river. And then we've got this scene on a parking deck, like the top floor of a parking deck downtown. And it was really cool because there's these wide shots of the city and it's all red because that was right before the Super Bowl. And there's even, if you look crazy close, it says like, let's go Chiefs on one of the buildings, but luckily you can, can't read it. So we're not in trouble for that. But <laughs> we even turned a couple of the lights that were other colors red. So it was all red, but yeah, we were so excited to show it off and shoot in places like record bar and split log coffee in the salon I work at Bobber shop and we shot in Pilgrim chapel, which tons of people have reached out and been like, I got married there. <laughs> like, I hope you, I didn't ruin your lovely <laughs> memories. <laughs> I love that you're, you know, kind of, you know, self-admittedly self-taught, you know, you didn't go to film school. Um, sounds like, you know, you did a lot of just like research on your own through like YouTube and all that stuff. So like what, what advice do you have for, you know, people living here, or, you know, maybe just in the Midwest in general that just want to make movies, you know, how do you get started? I'm sure that was like super intimidating to just, you know, become a director without, you know, any yeah. kind of like training or whatever. So like, what's a, what's that kind of process like to just jump into something and do it? And also what advice would you have for, you know, people who want to make films here? I think it's, it's scary seeming at first and especially when you're looking at like the broad picture from afar of trying to tackle something like that but i think what's important to realize is that nobody knows how to do it until they do it that's like something i've realized and it makes me feel better every time but that even if you're in school you're until you make something that's not it's not you don't know everything you need to know like there's tons of stuff you won't be able to figure out till you get into it but to not be afraid of the idea that you don't know half of what it's going to entail yet it's kind of something you have to learn as you go and to realize like it's not something that you have to do by yourself or really should some people can make whole things by themselves but it's 
if you kind of just start out with lists and break it down into small things that are accomplishable, like the team you need to find, that's how I approach anything that is from afar, like way overwhelming, which is everything to me. You just got to break it down into like accomplishable steps and realize like, you're not going to know how to do it till you do it. Uh, I, as Chris alluded to the, the, the reaction to it has been um, kind of crazy. Like the, all of the, like the rave reviews has been getting, even since its initial release at in festivals last year, like fantastic fest. Like I remember seeing, uh, last year, uh, C. Robert Cargill, who wrote Doctor Strange and Sinister, he tweeted uh, how he loved it. And I remember seeing that thing and like, oh my gosh, this movie is like... I like, was it's so geeked out about him tweeting that. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to know. And I also saw um, another film, uh, Lucky McKee tweeted something about it recently. But I was curious, like, what is this reaction meant to you, especially it being your first film? And has there been any particular reaction that's been extra special for you? It's been, it's like impossible to describe. It's just incredibly exciting and like very overwhelming and surreal. I have to, you have to like remind yourself like that this is happening or you're just caught up in all the working on stuff, I think. <laughs> and, but like you bring up the Cargill tweet, that one was like, I was geeked out, like <laughs> sending the tweet to everyone that worked on the movie via text <laughs> messaging and actually, even cooler, I'm a part of a movie Zoom group that's kind of a lot of people I used to see at film festivals. They meet twice a week. And I got on last night and he was on there. I've never seen him on there. And I geeked out again. And <laughs> it got quiet for a second and no one was talking. And he's like, well, if no one's going to talk, I want to tell you guys about Jill's new movie. It just came out on Arrow. And then he like pitches the movie to the whole group of people. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my that's amazing. God. I wish I had filmed his pitch. It was great. <laughs> but the Lucky McKee tweet also really personally geeks me out because I'm a huge fan of his film May and it largely influenced Claire to the point that I was worried about him watching it and being like, Jill just could totally rip me <laughs> off here. <laughs> I'm sure it's a form of flattery for him. Yes. <laughs> Only a little, a lot did I do that. <laughs> So I want to know um, if you've ever acted before, because the uh, towards the end when you make a, a big little cameo there where you get killed uh, on screen. Sorry, spoiler. Um, but uh, you're supposed to say that before. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not after after you. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, something happens to the film, and I already said it. Um, but uh, what was that like uh, going from you know behind the camera? And, and directing to then uh, being in that scene, which you did a great job, uh, very, very brutal, uh, but uh, what was really cool. Thank you. It was a huge challenge. Um, I had done very little, I don't know if you would call it acting before. <laughs> um, I've been, I've like cameoed, I've cameoed in some of the things I've done, but mostly I've been dead or I die. I think that's the only thing I do, actually. That's my specialty. Um, in my friend short film, BFF Girls, I helped produce it. It's also on Arrow, little nod there, but I got to die in that one, which was just like falling over. But um, <laughs> all the spoiler alerts. But um, in this was much more involved. Than any, I've only been on camera for like a second before, and I'm very, very 
camera shy and anxious. And so it's just not for me normally. So I had the tough thing with this is I had to decide quite a bit ahead of time, like two months to build a special effect. And I knew that I couldn't turn back, which is something I like to do when I say I'm going to be on camera. And so that was the scariest part is having these conversations with myself. Like you have to decide and then you can't change your mind. (laughs) Um, But it was also a practical thing. Like if I'm in the film, I'll work for free and my hair is easy to match into a wig, which it was all black at the time. So it's the wig thing and special effects. That's a very challenging thing when it came to casting anyone that was getting scalped. (laughs) Um, But it was like a childhood dream to like be killed in a horror movie and but very, I learned so much. Um, it was very challenging. And actually my friend, John Pada, who's a writer director too, he actually edited the film. Also the short, he was on, he was coming in town. So I had him essentially direct like second unit, direct that scene. Just so there was someone by the monitor directing me. I didn't want to go look at each take and be really particular about stupid things that don't matter or even let myself be that that way so I just trusted him we talked it all through I storyboarded it so but it was a lot because I was like just like having to hit all these marks and fall out of the frame I was like I'm doing a stunt essentially which they that's what the SAG would consider that not that I'm SAG but I'm like it it was a lot of pressure and I I understand now what when actors say your body doesn't know that what you went through isn't real even if you, you know, which doesn't, I don't understand how that's real, but at the end of the night, it was an overnight. So at like 7am when I went home, it was just like such an emotional thing afterwards. I I was like, maybe that, that is a lot harder than I thought it was, or like laying around screaming in blood. Um, But it was a lot of fun. I'll die in anyone's movie. That's, that's my only thing I want to (laughs) do. (laughs) You're fulfilling your own lifelong dreams. I love it. Yes. So uh, when you mentioned the scalping, I, I, I picked up on this and I don't know if it was intentional, but I, I, I loved it because I watched your intro about how uh, Texas Chainsaw is uh, your favorite uh, scary movie or horror movie. And so I loved what I was considering like nods to Texas Chainsaw, uh, like the scalping. And, uh, and it, it's no spoiler, Sarah, because it's in the trailer, uh, but uh, her putting on uh the the wig and and some wearing wigs of you know her victims uh was that like an intentional nod to to texas chainsaw or or was there any inspiration from from your favorite horror movie i think it must have naturally been why i thought that because i first wrote this idea down for like a hairstyle that kills people I still have the original note and I wrote like three thing, like four or five things that could happen or it could involve. And one of it was like her wearing scalps and them sitting on like mannequin heads, like trophies, which I feel like just has to come from all the skin wearing killers, which all are have very similar like psyches. And I think they're all inspired by Ed Gain. Um, So I just think because chainsaws I'm just such a huge fan that there's no way it didn't it wasn't in my head when I wrote that down but once I started to think that out further I was like oh yes she it's like a super feminine leather face (laughs) um like it's the idea how he puts on a mask and he starts acting like that character 
because if you bought, I don't know if it's as true in the any of the remakes, but like there's you know all the thousands of remakes and sequels, but in the original you see him in at least two or three different masks, and he acts like a different person in each one, which I think, which is the idea with this of her, you know, trying to escape yourself. But with Leatherface, he's never anything but other people. We don't know what he is on his own, really. For sure. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, oh, uh, it's okay. No. Uh, uh, how, yeah, so you were talking about um, Arrow a little bit. So how and like when did you get involved with them? And how did you know that they were, you know, the, the right home for your, your film? Yeah, that is a freaking dream situation to work with them. We we had XYZ films representing us as our sales agent domestically. And so that was a matter of kind of them. And back before COVID, everyone would see your film as far as like buyers, distributors at the premiere in person, which is kind of why the strategy is to try to get a premiere at a, at a certain status of festival because that's where because buyers attend those festivals. Um because this year was all virtual, it was a matter of our agents instead sending it out to all those buyers at the same time as the fantastic premiere. And so then you kind of just wait for offers to come and follow up. And Arrow was just, once we got, we knew they were interested. I was like, this is what there's no, we don't need to worry about anything else. This is what definitely what we're doing. <laughs> um, we just knew, I knew that with a company like them, like they are, true like lovers of film that they you know the stuff they put out is with so much care and thought that it's not just like a you know a simple photoshop poster and like chuck out a dvd you know they make special editions with everything they put out as a special edition and um then that they've also started their you know their new streaming platform so it was just like a dream collaboration and they've really kept us involved in everything the art the trailer so many things i've actually even curated my own selections for the channel that should go up in like a week or two um oh, nice. and spoiler alert chainsaws on there <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome uh yeah and you can uh you can get i think a 30-day free trial on arrow right now uh at least that's what i did and i'll probably yeah. and it's super unique that they include tons of special features so like for each title you go to the movie and then underneath it they could have one to 15 videos of behind the scenes or who you know interviews with people and they're always adding more of that kind of stuff like which is like a lot like criterion how they'll have a filmmaker just yeah. talking about another film and so they're looking to add a lot more of that kind of stuff too which is cool i thought that was really neat um how when i watched it then the drop down menu and then you could watch your intro and then I think it was like a maybe a, a 20 minute like making of which I'm going to go back and watch um but but you're right that's really cool to have because I'm a big physical media person um and which by the way I have to ask uh, I think I saw on your your guys's Twitter is that correct that you're going to come out with the blu-ray of the stylist in June yeah Arrow's putting it out in June and all the features from the player plus more will be on the blu-ray <laughs> and if the first release of it will be extra packed like they kind of always make their first you know release 
a special edition. All those special features will be on it forever, but the first edition is extra crazy packed full of stuff. I'm so excited to be able to talk about all of it. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to be one of the first to pre-order that. That's uh, that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, what's next for you now? <laughs> Now that now that the movie's out and you're kind of riding that wave, uh, what are you do? You, are you working on any, anything now, or um, are about to be working on anything? Yeah, I'm working on a couple other projects that are, you know, just in the develop like the de- development stage, and then one we're actually kind of moving to casting right now, or trying to add some cast to the package, but nothing I can really ex- talk about in too much exciting detail yet. They're all in the horror and thriller world. Um, But it's crazy. I'm actually working on the stylist still in so many ways. Like we were still finishing up a lot of those special features as of a few days ago and (laughs) um, putting together quite a few. Since I'm also one of the like lead producers on it, I'm dealing with all the business side of it on top of director doing hundreds of interviews, which is awesome. (laughs) But um. The emailing is overwhelming, but uh, sure. I'm actually trying to figure out now because it's, this is my first time releasing something this big that how to f- prioritize my life again, because it's getting challenging. <laughs> I bet. I, I also want to know just because of uh, as a fan of these like old school slasher movies, do you have any dream of doing a sequel to this one? That's an interesting question (laughs) because when I wrote this or when we wrote the feature, me and the Eric's, which is very, I don't know how I ended up working with two Eric's that was not intentional, (laughs) Um, but it was definitely from this with that script's intention was like, this is the end of her story. Spoiler alert after the film ends like the police are probably showing up and it's not really there's not much for it where for it to go or I didn't intend for it to become a franchise you know with its original story but I think that's every filmmaker's intention with any film that turned into a franchise especially all the classics like Chainsaw you know Toby made the sequel 10 years later and then made it a comedy intentionally because he's like I'm not going to try to do the same thing again I think Carpenter's famous for like being forced to write part two or something um, <laughs> under a contract. And I just think everyone intended for like that just to be one thing. It kind of yeah. naturally becomes, it's hard for it to not become silly when you extend something, unless it was, there's like few, few ones that I don't have words, few ones that don't meet that, but like, Hostel is a weird example, but it's a good way to like, they just took a different perspective on the same thing. So it worked in it as a sequel. But since the movies come out, I've been brainstorming all kinds of wild ideas (laughs) (laughs) considering it. And yeah, being, it's a weird mix of, I'm sad that I'll never see Claire again. And I'm like, but maybe we will. Should we write a sequel just to be prepared for it? A lot of me thinks that we should write a few versions of a sequel to see if the opportunity, I feel like sequels are kind of demanded by the fan base. It's like, it's wanted because people just like it that much. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I won't complain. Yeah, my, 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 uh, please. 
Uh, well, before you go, Jill, um, I gave you a heads up on Twitter about this. Uh, but oh what, man, <laughs> coming. Um, what are your? We'll just go with what are your top five horror favorite horror movies? Are we okay. gonna spoil your uh, what you have on Arrow by asking oh, yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, spoil your your selection. No. Okay. Good. Um, because most of only Chainsaw, which is obviously going to be in this top five, is on Arrow. That's in this list. Um, I did tell you to say yesterday that I'm so bad at picking favorite things because I just love so many things. Um, I kind of like make this list up every time I'm asked, but the few that always are in there is Chainsaw. Candyman um, is one of my favorites. Like I watched that. That's one of the first horror movies I ever watched. I remember seeing that in like when I was 10 years old <laughs> and it still scares me. I think just as much today. Um, I feel like scream has to be on there. Cause that was just so formidable to me at the time it came out. And it like taught me about so many other horror movies in that movie. Um, how do I pick more movies? <laughs> Maybe Lucky McKee's May, I love, and oh man, there's so many good movies. <laughs> I'm going to say The Exorcist, because I have such, I mean, that's a, obviously, I feel like Exorcist, Shining, and Chainsaw are the ones you should probably debate as like the best horror movie period of all sure. time, but Exorcist, I have like a special memory of like watching that in seventh grade on New Year's Eve. That's like <laughs> what me and my three like girlfriends do. Instead of like any real pro getting into real trouble, that's like our version of trouble in that at that age. I also watched it at a sleepover for the first time with several <laughs> friends. Heck yeah. <laughs> I don't think I watched it since. <laughs> <laughs> it scarred me. Well, well, thank you so much, Joe, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate the time. Uh, we're, we're so thrilled that the stylist is getting so much praise. Uh, it's so great. Uh, for you, it's so great for our city. It's great for horror in general. Um, so thank you for taking the time. And everyone go watch uh, The Stylist right now on Arrow. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Joe.